Annenberg Media. This is the Annenberg Learner Podcast, where we aim to elevate the education profession through conversations that inspire, recognize, and encourage innovation and best practices in the field. We track the lived experience of teachers, students, and parents alongside the ecosystem that serves them. Guest speakers will share what's working and the steps we can take to reimagine and redesign teaching and learning for our most vulnerable populations. Hello everyone, this is Matthew Rodriguez, Program Director for Annenberg Learner. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest today, Susanna Loeb. Uh, Susanna Loeb is Director of the Annenberg Institute at Brown University, where she is also Professor of Education and Professor of International and Public Affairs. Her research focuses broadly on education policy and its role in improving educational opportunities for students. Her work has addressed issues of educator career choices and professional development of school finance and governance and of early childhood systems. She is the founder and acting executive director of the National Student Support Accelerator. Before moving to Brown, Susanna was the Barnett Family Professor of Education at Stanford University. She was the founding director of the Center for Education Policy at Stanford and co-director of policy analysis for California Education Susanna led the research for both Getting Down to Facts projects for California schools, and in 2020, she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She holds a PhD in economics and an MPP in public policy from the University of Michigan, and a BA in political science and a BS in civil engineering from Stanford University. Susanna, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Annenberg Learner podcast. I'm really excited to hear about your work and um, Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me here, Natty. Um, it's really a pleasure. And um, just a little bit of history for our uh, listeners. Um, the Annenberg Institute uh, first started in 1993. Its history is through the Walter Annenberg's donation to improve public education in America. So it's interesting that now, many years later, we're uh, in the room talking about education again. <laughs> It's always a good topic, very important topic that we should be discussing always. Yes. Um, so I'd like to start with just some questions about um, the focus areas of the um, Annenberg Institute. I uh, looked over the site and there were two focus areas about uh, that focused on Center for Student Wellbeing and then the Center for Student Study of Educators. I'm curious if you can share a little bit about those um, areas of focus and, and how that relates to our current system and current, um, uh, po I guess, recovery and accelerated learning efforts across the country. Yes, I'd be happy to. So the goal of the Annenberg Institute at Brown is really to think about what a university can do to help equalize and improve educational opportunities. And part of that is uh, helping to inspire and train individuals to go and really be part of the education system. But another part of that is on learning, on, on new knowledge that can help us improve education and then taking that knowledge and helping it um, to go into practice so that we can make positive changes in schools. And to get there, we do, uh, do a number of things. We do a lot of research and we partner with districts around the country in order to uh, make sure that the research is relevant and rigorous and speaks to the needs on the ground. And so uh, we have 
the kind of framework for how we go about it, but then we really want to get go deep in a couple of focus areas. And those areas at the Annenberg Institute are on student well-being and on educators. And the reason that we focus on student well-being is because, I mean, I think the pandemic showed this as well. There's so many different aspects of development for students that are important. And while it's really important to learn reading and math and science and the, the core academic content, it's also important to make sure that students have optimism and resilience and a whole uh, bunch of other skills and ability to work in groups that can really serve them well uh, in the future. And so we have one center that, that focuses both on trying to think about what all those dimensions are and then how we help students develop them, mostly in schools, but also through uh, other kinds of government services that provide supports for families, libraries, uh, the health system. So the, the Center on Wellbeing focuses on this, mul this multiple dimension of learning that we really care about for students, and then the multi-sector multi approach towards helping students develop those capabilities. So that's one. And then we, the Educator Center really focuses more on schools Educators turn out to be, not surprisingly, both what we spend the most money on when we uh, create school systems and run school systems, but also the most important for, for students for developing their learning and also their uh, broad well-being. So teachers um, have been linked, of course, to, to academic learning, but also to just engagement and uh, success in the labor market and, and beyond. So in, in life in general. And so we have another center of work at the Annenberg Institute that focuses on uh, recruiting, developing, retaining, and supporting the best educators uh, that we possibly can in, in schools globally. Uh, thank you for sharing about those two focus areas. Uh, the site that mentioned, especially for the Center for Student Wellbeing, this idea of flourishing um, which I really liked. I hadn't seen that before. Can you talk a little bit about what that concept is? And also if there are models in the research of where those, uh, where that's being done, where all these systems are working together? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I'm not sure I can take it all on, but I will do, do my best. So I think there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of factors that go into whether an individual flourishes. And those part of those things are just luck or how the world they were born into, the weather at the time, there, there are all these things that are out of our control in terms of what contributes to flourishing. But there are these capabilities that students can develop and children can develop that will really lead them to, uh, to a life that, that we consider flourishing, which is one where they're happy and engaged and um, contributing to themselves and to others. And so um, the capabilities that we often think of are basically economic productivity, where you're, you're in school, let's say, in order to develop skills that will help you in the labor market, but really to flourish, students also need to know how to have 
positive social relations, to treat each other well and as equals, to, to particularly in a, in a world, uh, in the US today, they need to know how to participate in a democratic society in a way where they're effective uh, voters and um, members of communities. So there's this range of skills that they need. I actually, with colleagues, wrote a book on this um, called Educational Goods. Um, with Adam Smith, Harry Brighouse, and Helen Ladd. And so um, that book is available that talks about kind of the capabilities that go into flourishing and also the education policies and how we can really think of education and the schools that we have um, in terms of how they contribute to this range of capabilities that lead to flourishing. And that really can help us think about um, education policy in a more systematic way. I think sometimes people um, say they really like something in education, but they can't say why. So they'll say, I care so much about arts education because by having arts education, it will have students more interested in math, that it engages them in school. The reason we have arts is because it increases math or literacy or something like that. Well, that doesn't need to be true if we really think that there's also this part of life that and flourishing that is about appreciation and delving into something um, like art or sports or other things that that really engage people and and um, allow them to lead full lives. Hmm. I love it. And uh, thank you for um, sharing about the book. The last bit that you said reminds me, uh, what came to mind is, is passion, right? Helping students to figure out what, they, what they're interested in, what really moves them to experience deep learning. Um, one, one aspect is uh, what can get them work, really, uh, you know, well-paying jobs that help them to make a living. And the other aspect is what really enriches their lives and makes them feel connected. Um, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive, obviously. Um, well, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about the Center on the Study of Educators, uh, looking at the news in the last year and um, whether there is or isn't a teacher shortage in certain states or, or sub shortage. And I'm curious how uh, the, the research and the work being done at the center has shaped or influenced uh, how you think about the current state of recruitment and development and training of talented educators. Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. So my, the, the center is quite new. But I think there's been a lot of work done by um, done on on educators and their importance for students. And this this is teachers primarily, but also principals and superintendents. We'll talk a little bit about tutors, also paraprofessionals. The the adults that that students interact with really determine the the their experiences in school, and so they're really central for us to provide a quality education. And we know, for example, that having a diverse teacher workforce, a workforce that uh, is representative of the, the community and representative of the, the broader world is really important for students. And if we have a workforce like we do right now that is far more white and female than the population of students is, then that's probably not optimal for students. So there's really interesting work going on right now about how to diversify the teacher workforce. And similarly, it's, um, it's also difficult uh, and has been difficult to recruit 
teachers with, with certain skills. So skills, for example, in multiple languages so that they can work well with English learners or um, skills in higher level math. And so a bunch of work has been going into trying to um, diversify the teacher workforce in multiple ways and both in terms of background, but also in terms of some of these more difficult to, to um, staff positions and skills. So that's one really important thing that we've learned is that, that who comes in to be a teacher is really important and we wanna make sure that we have diversity there. Then it's also really clear that the kinds of professional development and instructional materials that teachers have to work with are really, really important. So there's a lot of kind of variation in skills and being a teacher that, that teachers have when they enter the classroom, but so much of being effective is the how they learn to teach once they're in the classroom and then do they have good curriculum and good curricular materials and enough time to really have the kinds of lesson plans and uh, attention to students that they need to be effective. So the second is in that area um, and other adults in the school like principals and paraprofessionals are really important for that, for creating the supports that teachers who are the really the ones who are working most with the students are as effective as they can be. And so um, thinking about that full group of educators, for example, we just did, have done one study recently that we're just about done with on um, kind of the range of adults in schools. And we think of school adults and teachers come to mind, but in fact, teachers make up less than half of the adults in public schools in the US right now. And so really oh, wow. thinking about all of the adults in schools. Yes, many paraeducators who work more individually with students, principals, coaches, um, counselors, all of these other really important roles that are, are, um, are for adults in schools. And there's a nice new paper too that looks at uh, the importance of guidance counselors. So that's that's the second one. And then there's a lot on, on uh, retaining teachers. And actually, as we were uh, in the pandemic, we thought, oh, well, it's if people are gonna be unemployed and looking for jobs and it's not gonna be a problem uh, recruiting and retaining teachers. But in fact, labor markets are really tight right now. And so um, making sure that teachers are, are paid and supported and encouraged in a way that that keeps them doing these really important jobs is, I think, uh, really criti critical to high quality education systems. And so there's a line of work that we're doing in the Center for Educators on that. Thank you for sharing about uh, one of the initiatives for learners, really thinking about how we elevate our teachers and how do we how do we help the profession really be looked with the importance that it has I mean I think that's been clear in the last year how how much they've supported our students and it's not easy work by any means that's that's um, just right as part of its mission to advance excellent teaching in American schools Annenberg Learner funds and distributes educational video programs coordinated online and print materials for the professional development of K-12 teachers. Many programs are also intended for students in the classroom and viewers at home with videos that exemplify excellent teaching. K-12 educators, students, and lifelong learners may access Annenberg Learner resources for free at learner.org.
Please note, rights restrictions may limit the availability of some series. For the latest information about learner programming and availability, sign up for the Annenberg Learner Newsletter at learner.org. Um, well, I'd love to uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about the National Student Support Accelerator. Um, can you share a little bit about what this, what it is and how did this work get started? Sure. So early in the pandemic, a group of educators came together to talk about all the disruptions that students were experiencing. And at that time, students had already lost substantial ground academically, if you compare them to students who were in the same grade in the prior year. And it was clear that, that this kind of loss was particularly severe for low-income students and students of color. So, so really exacerbating what we already knew were big differences in educational opportunities. And while these academic losses were clear, it was even more striking, like we were talking about with the well-being center, was the negative effects that the pandemic was having on students' broader well-being that leads them to flourishing. So some students clearly thrived at home and in online settings, but many others experienced kind of severe hardship and fundamentally, as a result, disengaged from school. And in thinking together in this group about what to do to help address these students' needs, um, we quickly identified tutoring as a high potential option for catching students up and re-engaging them in school and reducing some of these kind of striking and expanding inequalities. Rarely, if you look at research, and I hate kind of silver bullet solutions to things, but rarely in research do we have so much evidence pointing to the promise of a specific approach. The studies, and there are many of them, show positive effects of tutoring across grade levels and subject areas with effects in most cases from a you know, half a year additional learning to more than a year of learning for tutoring over an academic year. And often the results are based on studies of students who are far behind on grade level. So tutoring has turned out to be a really effective way to accelerate learning for those who have substantial unfinished learning. And so um, as, as we started to think about this as a group, we realized that the evidence is strong, but scaling a promising practice like this is never easy. Yes. And um, tutoring on a large scale was attempted during No Child Left Behind era with pretty poor results. But we were also aware that the kind of tutoring that had been shown to be effective in all these studies was not the kind of tutoring, tutoring that NCLB expanded. So NCLB was really focused on homework help tutoring where students have to come with the questions and kind of the knowledge of their needs and it's ad hoc. On mm -hmm. the other hand, the type of tutoring shown to be effective is consistent tutoring with, from a well-supported tutor who uses data to understand student needs and can really focus in on those needs. And it's relationship-based. So, so it builds students' overall well-being as well as you know, helping with their academic skills and knowledge. So we saw tutoring as a really, as a potential way to address some of the problems that had emerged during the pandemic, as well as some of the inequalities that were there already. But we realized that it's difficult to scale. So in order to help scale this type of high impact tutoring, our group launched the National Student Support Accelerator. 
And our mission at the Accelerator is to increase access to high impact tutoring for K-12 students in need. And um, it's, it's a very kind of broad goal in that way to increase access. And we don't do it by tutoring ourselves, but in other ways. So we conduct and coordinate research that we, so that we can know more about what makes tutoring effective and cost-effective so that it can be implemented for the long run and what enables, uh, what enables tutoring to scale within districts. So the research is one. Second, we provide technical assistance and tools. And if you go to our website, which it sounds like you have, you can see that we have a whole bunch of free uh, tools uh, that you can just grab on based on research that can help with implementation. Um, and third, we work in, in situations like this to really help engage and activate stakeholders to support districts and states to implement high impact tutoring more easily. Um, and you can read all about it if you'd like to, um, as well as for the tools at, at uh, studentsupportaccelerator.org if you want to, or just reach out to me. Thank you. Thank you, Susanna. There's so much there for our listeners, so much there for uh, district leaders, um, anyone's uh, wanting to, to implement high dosage tutoring. And I was really impressed with this work um, that came out so quickly. Uh, so uh, Susanna and I first met over a year ago when there was still uh, um, uh, research and interviews being done. And now the site is very robust and it has a lot of resources for uh, practitioners. Um, and not to derail us too much, but I'm curious, uh, you mentioned at the beginning, you, you very quickly landed on tutoring as a way uh, to help students that were falling uh, behind or were experiencing uh, gaps in their learning. What were some of the other ideas that came out of that group? If, well, you, can, if you recall. <laughs> yes. Well, I think tutoring really stood out if what you want to do is accelerate students learning because what it allows you to do is not teach a really wonderful class to students but but have them have to take the whole class it really hones in on the specific needs that they have in order to catch up and really engage in the current grade level work so it's uh I don't think there were other options that we found out there that could really do this. I mean, wow. to, a, to a certain extent, you could do tutoring in different ways. You could do it during the school year, you could do it in the summer. But the thing that we found is that for this kind of individual acceleration, for students who are in very different places and have different needs, this is really the approach to take. But of course, there are other things that, that schools need. They need supports uh, to help with students' mental health because of uh, all the disruptions students have experienced, as well as the, the difficulties in the world more generally. We need to have really strong curriculum so that the courses themselves are really strong and well-trained uh, teachers, as we've, as we've talked about, educators are central to everything. So there's all of this of having a good school. But if what you want to do is to take students who are in very different places and have very different individual needs because they skipped school at different times and lost things at different times, then tutoring um, in a couple of different forms is really uh, the most promising approach by far. Got it. Got it. 
in looking at the, the work, um, there were 10 pilot sites that were selected for some of this research and, and the recommendations that came out of it. Can you talk a little bit about how they were selected and what were some of the findings that came out of the pilot sites? I would love to. Um, so we've partnered with districts around the country and these partnerships have allowed us to learn about kind of challenges and successes that districts have when they try to scale high impact tutoring. And then it's allowed us to begin to test different features of tutoring, such as how important is pre-tutoring training for tutors? Should tutoring be one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two or even you know one-on-five? Which students need it the most? So the, it's allowed us to do all of this kind of learning. Um, in order to do that, we wanted to select sites that uh, varied a lot so that we could see this in lots of different contexts. So certainly we selected sites in part opportunistically. They were interested in tutoring. This was before all the federal funds came in, before tutoring had really taken off. So we had to find sites that were interested in this, but we wanted to get a variety. And we have, we did, we have some small and some large, some serving almost all low-income families and some more mixed. East Coast, West Coast, in the middle, North, South, urban, suburban, those kinds of things. So that was really what we were looking for is to try to see what was going on in a bunch of different contexts. Most of our research studies on kind of the effects of features of tutoring are still in process. So I don't have that much to share on those. Mm -hmm. um, we did do one early study in terms of the features and this was looking at an opt-in program it's very tempting for districts to say, we're gonna provide this kind of opt-in program to all our students because it's, a, um, it's kind of an appealing thing to do to say this is available. But when you have an opt-in program like this, one thing that we've learned from this study is that perhaps not surprisingly, it's actually the higher achieving students that make use of this, not the lower achieving students. It's yes. the more engaged students in school, not the less engaged. So it's really not a very good approach if what you're trying to do is increase equity and address uh, the needs of the students who, have, who are struggling the most. Opting in isn't the right way. I, I think you can make it better by uh, kind of encouraging teachers to take it up and having the teachers uh, have the students take it up and that way you can focus it in, but it's a really hard thing to do with opt-in tutoring. So that's just one example of a feature that we were looking at. Um, I think the, the research that's come out so far has been a lot about what are the challenges in um, implementing high impact tutoring and what can we learn that can help us uh, to know what to do as, as so many more districts are taking this up. So, I mean, one thing that we've seen just looking across the country is that many districts are interested in high impact tutoring right now. Um, so this probably isn't surprising given the needs of students like we talked about and given that there's a lot more money uh, from the federal government specifically to help with learning loss. Because mm -hmm. of that, there's tons of interest in tutoring. But anyway, in our partner districts, we we've have a number of lessons. And um, I think the first is this kind of draw to try to make it available to all students. And so the opt-in is um, one way that districts try to do it, but they also um, have this real pull to, to do it just by doing things like not giving very much of it 
or having the ratios of students uh, to teachers be really high, so five, six to one, that may lose some of the benefits of tutoring. The programs that have been high impact have really provided a lot of tutoring and have provided it with quality. So it's much better to give a smaller number of students really high quality tutoring, especially when you're starting off, than all students low quality tutoring, um, especially if you're trying to increase equity. So if tutoring is low quality or if it requires students to opt in, the most in need students are the ones who are going to miss out. So keeping quality high is probably the first thing we've learned and don't skimp there. Hmm. Um, the second that learning is the importance of administrative capacity um, and really the need for supports in designing and implementing programs. Even with plenty of funds available, it takes effort by district leaders and school leaders and for some programs, it even takes teachers effort to make all the choices needed to implement high impact tutoring. Um, as a result, particularly because of the pandemic, educators are, are exhausted at this time. They've had to you know, figure out their HVAC systems. So technical yes. assistance and tools can be really helpful with that. Um, at the Accelerator, we've been building, building these tools based on our experience with our partner districts to make implementation easier but states and even philanthropy can really help with this as well. So the second thing is that this uh, administrative capacity is important. It's been a, a really trying time with lots of decisions in districts. And so many districts could use help in this area. Um, I've got two more. So the third is, is finding from this work is really the recognition that building tutoring into the school day can be tricky. So the best programs, um, do their tutoring during the day. And this is in part because that's when you get students who are least engaged in school to, to show up to it. Yeah. Other students or students who with real challenges, once they leave school, they may have other things, taking care of family, working jobs that they need to do. But schools need to be creative to do this well. In high schools, intervention periods are great options. Using homeroom periods or one elective um, is another good option. But it is possible to do it right before or after school strategically for students who can make it work so that you can free up more of the time during the school day for students who can't make that work. So, so the importance and difficulty of scheduling is um, uh, a third learning that we've had. And um, all this to say is districts are creative in this and are implementing tutoring during the school day. It just takes a little bit of work. And finally, I think this is the most uh, recent lesson. And when, as I mentioned, when we went into this, um, the unemployment rate was high. We expected that one of the benefits was uh, of tutoring is that it would supply jobs for many people looking for jobs as well as the benefits for, um, for the students themselves. But the labor market right now is unusually tight. So I have trouble hiring at Brown University and districts across the country are having trouble finding teachers, substitute teachers really, and relevant for us tutors. I think that the low supply of tutors is actually a temporary issue and not a typical time that like basically this is not a typical time for labor markets. However, this is the time we're in. And as a result, districts are really needing to think about how they can attract and retain the tutors that they need. 
A number of districts and even states are partnering with universities. Teacher education programs can provide tutors while simultaneously building the teaching skills of their teacher candidates. Colleges can provide undergraduates, some of whom have these scarce skills like language and mathematics. And it similarly provides educational experiences for those college students. Community groups can be a source. Overall, I think this labor market presents our biggest hurdle to expanding tutoring. But if we use this temporary challenge to build pathways into tutoring and maybe uh, further from tutoring into teaching, we may actually be better off in the long run because we were forced to build these bridges. But it is a challenge right now. Yes. Yes, um, I, I love this, uh, your last point of um, partnering with uh, colleges, community organizations. Um, I, I'm curious, do you see it in this work um, that the teacher pathway, the credentialing process and teacher prep um, will, will change because of this? Well, there are places, Illinois is a really good example, where they are trying to build tutoring into their teacher preparation programs. And so, yes, I, I think that tutoring provides an excellent opportunity for learning for, for teacher candidates because they can uh, first, let's say they learn to teach reading to an individual student that's that's a really powerful experience for them just in teaching. But then as a tutor, they might interact with parents, they'll interact with teachers. It's a much more concrete educational experience than some of the observations that have been more typical of teacher preparation programs. And so instead of observing, you're really getting to, to dive in. Yes, I agree. Yes. Um, okay, great. Thank you. The Annenberg Foundation is a family foundation that provides funding and support to nonprofit organizations in the U.S. and globally. The foundation is dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. To learn more, go to annenberg.org. Uh, you mentioned the high-impact tutoring. So can you, can you share a little bit about what, what is meant by high-impact? And I think we also talked about high-dosage uh, for our listeners. What do those terms mean? Oh, that's great. Okay, so high impact tutoring is, is high dosage tutoring, but it's more. So one of the things about high, high impact tutoring is it's called high impact because what we've done is looked at all of these studies that are out there and there are more than 150 random control trials, which are these really high quality studies of program effects. And so you can see whether a program is effective at increasing student learning. And many of them have been really, really effective. So we took those programs and said, what are common features of the programs that have been really effective? And certainly dosage was a common feature of those programs. That means that the students are receiving tutoring three or more times a week for, for a class period, for, the, for a semester or for a whole school year, even better. So a lot of tutoring and in small groups, kind of one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three. So you've got that high dosage part of it, but there are other things that are common in these high impact programs. And, um, and I've, I've touched on them a little bit so far. You basically, you need a, a well-trained tutor. And the, 
what's been amazing is that really lots of people can be this well-trained tutor. So it can be a certified teacher or a paraprofessional, but it also can be a college student or a community member. A wide range of people can be effective tutors, but they need support. So they need initial training and oversight so that if they're struggling, somebody's there to help them figure out how they can do what they're doing better. So this oversight and coaching of tutoring is really important. They're having good materials because some of the tutors, most of the tutors were not certified teachers. They don't know exactly what to do in every situation that a student may come in with and the struggles that they have. So having materials that help them address the specific needs of the students in ways that are engaging for the student is really important. And then data is really important because it's really difficult for a student who doesn't understand something to know that they don't understand it. And you can't, you can't say to a student, what, do, what are you struggling with? What don't you know? You really need other kinds of information, whether it comes from a formative assessment or from teachers in the, uh, that the student has in the classroom. Tutors need that kind of information. So high impact programs, have uh, used data to guide instruction. So they strong tutors, good materials, data, a lot of it. And then the other is really around issues of equity. In order, as we talked about, to reach the students that, um, that you need to reach, you've got to make sure that, uh, that they have access. And the best way to do that is to embed the, the tutoring in the school day. So um, those are some of the, the key features of high impact tutoring. Got it, thank you. Um, I'm I just think kind of thinking out loud, I'm wondering if there have been a lot of redesign of school days in this last year because of the pandemic and trying to integrate these other additional uh, programming. I actually think that there's an opportunity now because, of course, school days were uh, redesigned, as you could say, or uh, given they were done differently, at least during the pandemic, because so much was online. Now, as we're coming back, I think there is the possibility of falling back into the traditional structures that were there before, but also a recognition that we learned a lot during these last 18 months or more um, of the pandemic that can help us think better about what students need and how to design the school day. And so I do think some, a lot of those conversations are going on right now. How, how does mentorship factor into, into the toolkit and recommendations? I know you mentioned relationship-based tutoring is one of the um, uh, uh, factors that contributes to high quality tutoring. Um, any thoughts on, on mentorship and where, if, if there's any information on that in the work? Yeah, so we actually work closely with David Shapiro and his team at Mentor, which really focuses yes. not surprisingly on mentoring to make yes. sure that mentoring best practices are kind of referenced as resources in our tutoring toolkit and other materials because both mentoring and tutoring are built on these strong relationships. And we, we have a lot to learn about tutoring from those who know about mentoring. Um, I do wanna make clear that mentoring also differs from tutoring. Yes. So, so tutoring like mentoring is built on strong relationships with an adult, as you said. However, for tutoring, the content is focused on academic learning while for mentoring it's not. And it might sound too narrow to focus on academic learning, 
but it actually has some advantages even for goals that are similar to the ones for mentoring, like building overall student well-being. And here, here's my logic. So tutoring helps students learn, and that leads to success in schools, which they can celebrate with their tutor, who they have this close um, relationship with. And that in turn increases their engagement in school and starts this whole positive cycle. So all of this is very satisfying for the student and also for the tutor. So mentoring is a really important part of tutoring, but focusing on academics has some benefits as well because the success that you have in academics really affects your ability to engage and your interest in engaging in school in the long run, which we know is really help, which is really beneficial for students. Yes. Yes, um, I, I think I've been in a lot of conversations where we kind of inter interchange the two. <laughs> yes. And I love the distinction that you just provided. What do you think about the statewide initiatives that are supporting tutoring at scale? Uh, I'm thinking of states like Tennessee and um, in California, we have a new initiative for college, uh, college students to receive stipends to do service work. Um, and I think Texas has some uh, funds that are also being diverted to tutoring statewide. Do you have an, any um, uh, familiarity with these programs, the best practices that you've highlighted in your work with the Institute? Yeah, yeah I love these statewide initiatives. <laughs> that's especially if they include quality guardrails, so, so make them high impact. So I, I think that's a, that's a really important role of the state. Um, but in any case, the states can do great things. So some of the challenges we hear about the most, like we've talked about ability to hire enough tutors, how to train them, where to get instructional materials can be solved more efficiently at the state level, particularly if you have, for example, lots of small rural districts or small districts, the state really has an ability to do things at a broader level that can be useful. Um, I'm especially excited about initiatives that integrate universities and their teacher prep programs like we talked about in Illinois and California, as that strategy could support um, a larger and more diverse educator pipeline in the future. Um, so states really have a critical role to play in supporting districts to take up something like tutoring that has so much potential, but is tricky to get right. Um, and during this time, like we talked about just before, when so much is changing for educators and leaders day to day, it's really helpful for states to provide easy access to a core of tutors like the North Carolina Education Corps has done with early literacy tutors. It's also helpful for states to provide these policy guide rails so that that um, districts know that what they mean by tutoring is high, high impact tutoring and not this homework help. So Texas, for example, in requiring tutoring requires a certain amount of tutoring. Um, some states have even provided design programs, sometimes called design boot camps, uh, where you bring together district leaders to design tutoring programs together, which builds this community of practice. Um, others have adopted the toolkit that we created for tutoring programs um, and for their local context and given it to districts. So I think state efforts hold a lot of promise and we're really optimistic that they'll help districts get tutoring right for students, unlike when we tried to scale without kind of a clear definition of, of what we're looking for. Great. Well, th thank you. I'm 
good to hear that you uh, support these programs. It also makes me wonder, why didn't we do this a long time ago? <laughs> but um, I guess the best I have, time... I have a guess. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, please share. Well, tutoring <laughs> is, is really, really effective. Um, and it's really cost effective. So for the returns in student learning and engagement that you get, it's really worthwhile in terms of its cost, but it's also costly. And so as a result, it takes a lot of funds in order to get it going. And if you're guessing, well, maybe this will be good, but do I really want to take all my funds and change my schedule during the day and bring in all of these tutors, these additional educators into schools when I've got a strong teacher workforce? Um, that kind of transition and change is really hard to, to accomplish. And that's why I think we're in a, an exciting time right now, because not only did the pandemic really shake things up and made what was there before, which were striking inequalities and students with individual needs who didn't need to kind of repeat a whole course. Um, the pandemic really shone light on that. And then recently, huge amounts of federal funds have come in as well. So we've got kind of a shaken up school, lots of money, a clear light on student needs. And so we've got this kind of opportunity right now where people are saying, oh, well, maybe we can try this other thing. We have the funds for it. We're already a bit uh, different than we were before. And so I think there's this opening that helps, um, helps us move against some of the forces that keep big change from happening. I love it. I love this, uh, this opportunity, really. Um, and I I'm curious, so a, a lot of it has been this release of funds, the American Rescue Plan Act, um, what what happens when that money runs out and where do you see the momentum around tutoring going once we're uh, past this this period of opportunity and momentum and energy around this? Yeah. So, you know, when we started this, we thought funding was going to be the biggest challenge just for why oh. I, I, what I just said, because, you know, it's it's hard to do something that's costly. Uh, when you have to stop other things in order to do it. But there is, you know, $28 billion in funding dedicated just to learning loss. So it's really uh, targeted essentially to the things that tutoring can provide. And so suddenly there's this unprecedented amount of money. Nonetheless, as you mentioned, the funding's gonna run out. Um, districts do, again, have other sources of funding that could support tutoring, but there'll be competition for those funds from established programs. Uh, one example of the funds is Title I funding mm -hmm. is available for tutoring. Title IV Part B establishes the 21st Century Community Learning Centers, which can include tutoring. So you can combine those kinds of funds. Um, many of the tutoring programs that were active already um, such as Saga Education and Reading Corps partnered with the Corporation for National and Community Service, um, and they used AmeriCorps funds. So there are those kinds of funds out there, um, but will districts choose to use that money for tutoring rather than for other programs? That's, that's really what the question is. And in order, I think, to do that, they will need to really see that tutoring is effective for their students. And that's why this is such an important time, not only to get tutoring going in districts so that students who've been hurt by the pandemic can benefit, but it's important to learn from this implementation 
so that we really know whether it's had a positive effect, for whom it's had a positive effect, how they, it can be embedded as part of core programs in schools so that we can use it not only to reach pandemic related needs, but also can address some of these other needs, these inequalities that we've had in educational opportunities. Um, so using COVID funds, this is a great time to see what high impact tutoring can do for students in your districts, and then to take that learning. So not only put it in, but try to see its effectiveness so that you can take that learning to make the new decisions about how to use the old funding streams once the COVID funding streams have run out. Be a part of America's Student Support Network. Become a tutor, a mentor, or serve to support young people through quality opportunities today. Go to GetReadySet.org to learn how you can help. And if you are located in California, you can volunteer to tutor online today by going to StepUpTutoring.org. StepUp Tutoring's mission is to drive student success by providing free online tutoring and mentorship to elementary school students in third through sixth grades. Help spread the word. Prospective tutors may apply online through the StepUp Tutoring website website at stepuptutoring.org. And I'm curious, in, in the conversations with district leaders that you had with the sites or, or even in just recommendations and toolkits, how are they measuring effectiveness? So let's say we're in a couple years in and they're deciding where they're going to get money now to continue or not continue tutoring. Um, what will be those measures of success for them from the district perspective? Yeah, so I mean, I think they're really interested in students' assessment scores, so mm -hmm. how they're doing in the subject area. And many of the districts uh, collect these kinds of formative assessments as the students go. So not just the state tests or something that's a little disconnected from what the students are learning in the classroom, but something really aligned with that. Are the students more successful in classrooms? I think they'll look for uh, not only though at that, but also signs of engagement. So mm -hmm. attendance and other sign, other behaviors that indicate engagement in schools. So I do think districts are thinking about what outcomes they care about. I think one of the tricks is in order to really know if something works, you need a comparison group and making sure that districts have a comparison group so they can say, well, I know it worked for students because the students who got tutoring really, this went really well for them while the students who didn't but were quite similar to them uh, who didn't get tutoring didn't do as well. So having some kind of comparison there is gonna be really important. And you know, one way you could do it is it's very hard to just start up and provide it to all students. So you could imagine providing it one year to one set of students or one term to one set of students and then another term to a next set of students. And if those two groups are similar, you can see after the first term how good that was for the students who received it relative to other students. So that comparison, much more in some ways than the measures, because districts are pretty good at the measures, are going to be important to, to really be able to say that this was effective. Got it. Got it. Thank you. So I read through some of the recommendations, and I'm curious if you had, if there's one that do you think is the most critical component? So one, the first one was tutoring should be embedded in existing schools or during their school day, which we talked about. Um, the tutoring sessions should include a minimum of three sessions per week. That's what we talked about being high dosage tutoring. Uh, third one, students should work with a consistent tutor who's supported by ongoing oversight and coaching. 
The fourth, uh, data should inform tutoring sessions. And the fifth, materials should be aligned with research and state standards. If we had, <laughs> which you one I guess to is the so biggest <laughs> bang for our buck? <laughs> I, I actually think like almost all good programs, the key isn't the individual piece, but how they work together to create something that really works. So mm -hmm. for tutoring, you need enough of it. You need the tutors who care and connect to the students and those teachers, those tutors need support to do their work well. Um, and you need data on student needs with good materials. So I, I'm not gonna choose. I think we wanna design <laughs> a program. The students, many students really need substantial supports in order to um, work at grade level, see that they can be successful and then really thrive as they move through school. This doesn't have to, tutoring doesn't have to be with students um, every, every day, every week for their whole time in school, but there are times when students get behind where they really need this kind of support. I would do it, I would do it all out. I think we wanna, we wanna give them what they need to succeed. Hmm. Thought of another question, but if you had to pick which grade or age do you think is the most critical if, you, if they could get tutoring for one year, one academic year or one calendar year, um, is there a grade level that would have the most impact? Yeah, so that's a good question. <laughs> I think the, the best evidence on tutoring is for children learning to read, so early elementary reading, and mm -hmm. then for later middle school and high school students who are struggling with math. And that isn't to say that those are the necessarily the most important times. We don't have equal number of studies in all subject areas for all grades. Um, my guess is that tutoring can be effective in all ages. And if you've got a student that's not at those ages and is struggling, I think tutoring is a great way of accelerating their learning. Yes. Nonetheless, I think the reason we have studies for those two times is that's when schools have tended to use it. And they have a pretty, pretty good sense of what students need. Hmm. For students who are having trouble learning to read, reading is gonna be so important for the rest of schooling, I would give them tutoring. So that would probably be my first choice. But um, high school students and upper middle school students who have, who have missed some math and so they can't be successful in algebra, those are really gonna hurt them in the long run. It's really hard to, to get through high school and be successful without, without an ability to pass algebra. And, and I think that um, can have long-term effects and you have much less of school left to help them out with. And so I do think that some of this kind of upper middle school and high school tutoring is also really important. So again, I'm not answering your question. <laughs> That's <well>. okay. <laughs> um, but I also think you don't need to give it to all students in those grades. You want to give it to the students who are most in need, um, which will be beneficial for them. And then it will increase equity more broadly. Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you, Susanna. Is there anything else that you would like to share about this work uh, with the learner audience? Uh, well, first, thank you for having me. Um, the only thing I guess I would just repeat is that we're really in a special moment with kind of unprecedented need and an opportunity to adjust how we do schooling so that students are assured access to an adult who can help them academically 
and really more broadly champion their learning and success, we use that term, um, mm -hmm. at the Accelerator and the Enberg Institute at Brown more generally, we're trying to do what we can not to lose this opportunity. So if anyone in your interested in helping increase students' access to high-impact tutoring and could use help, just please reach out to us. Uh, I really appreciate being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all about this work. It's very exciting. It's an exciting time to be at, at the front lines of um, developing these toolkits for districts across the country. And I look forward to continuing to, to follow your work, Susanna. Thanks so much. All right. The Annenberg Learner Podcast joins the catalog of multimedia professional learning content to support educators teaching in more effective ways. Annenberg Learner is the education division of the Annenberg Foundation. Learner supports the foundation's mission to encourage the development of more effective ways to share ideas and knowledge. Go to learner.org and annenberg.org to learn more.